Let's focus our attention. We're in the book of Hebrews, and if you remember from last week, uh, good or bad, we spent 35 minutes looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. If you have any questions at this point on verse 1, I have no idea what those questions would be because we exhausted it last week, but I hope that you saw what I saw. This amazing declaration of the greatness of Jesus Christ, his attributes of being both an apostle, one who was sent, as well as our high priest. I, I hope you received more than just an education about the words, but a heart passion for wanting to live greater for Christ in light of just a simple verse. How it can impact you, how it can change you, how it can challenge you, how it can just focus your mind throughout the day thinking great thoughts about Jesus Christ. Well, we're not going to go over verse 1 again, but verse 1 does happen to be part of the chapter, so we're going to mention it in a bit. But I want to ask a question before we get started about the people in your life who have influenced you, especially Christians. People who have influenced you in your Christian walk. Now for me, uh, knowing that this is not going to embarrass this person, I would have to say, the single person that has influenced my Christian life more than anyone else living would be my mom. I don't know of a person who is more consistent and diligent in prayer than my mom. I don't know of anyone living who is more diligent in accepting what the day brings than my mom. And I want to emulate that characteristic that she has a total dependence upon God, and a prayer life that is um, oh, fulfilled. It is fulfilled. And I look back in my life, and uh, many of the people who have influenced me greatly in my Christian walk are in glory. They're no longer walking among us. And one of the characteristics that matches the people that I highly respect and have influenced me greatly is their humility. And you might be saying, Tim, when are we going to see that in you? One day, one day I will be working on my humility and God will bring it in spades and he will bring me low before his cross and I will exalt him for that gift of humility and that characteristic. But the people who have greatly influenced me have definitely been people who are humble. I remember watching a man, and being able to control their temper, I remember watching this man who deeply influenced my Christian life with humility, being yelled at and cursed at by a man, slandered by him, and he stood by, cried, and prayed for this man's anger and his temperament. Um, just an amazing example. And I know I've mentioned this to you before, a guy by the name of Armin Gesswein who very few people in the world know who Armin Gesswein was. But Billy Graham saw something in him because back in the 40s, Billy Graham made him his prayer coordinator, which meant that Armin went to the city before the crusade came and just started praying. And he would get a bunch of local pastors and he would go in and out of that stadium, he would go seat to seat, and he would pray. That was his full-time job to pray. I don't want that job. That just seems like a lot of praying. And it was. That's all he did. His entire day was devoted to prayer. And the humility that Armin Gesswein exhibited 
I long to have that type of characteristic in my life. I don't know who's influenced you. I don't know what part of Christian character was that influence, but we've all had those people in our lives that have just really remarkably singled out something that convicted us, that encouraged us, that made us go, I need to work on this. And those are some of the people that I look to. Now, Scripture is full of people who have had great influence in our lives. And I'm not talking about Jesus. We're going to get to him in a minute. But I'm talking about all the other characters in Scripture. You think of all those judges in the book of Judges. And some of them were amazing and awesome and great characters to follow. And some were definitely ones you do not want to follow. One of those characters in Scripture that I think has a near and dear place to our hearts as believers is Moses. What an incredible story Moses went through. From his birth and the protection that God gave him and the education that God gave him in those first 40 years, and then, oh, not so happy about the murder that he performed. He ran away and hid from God for 40 years, but then God brought him back into his midst and said, you are going to be my prophet. You are going to lead my people out of captivity to the promised land. And Abra and Moses, even after all of the, I can't do it, I don't speak well in front of people, I can't do it, I'm scared, I can't do it, I'm, I'm not the right person, God convinced him, God humbled him, and he said, yes, Lord, where you lead, I will follow, and I will lead your people to freedom. And he did, with miracle upon miracles. Of course, towards the end of his life, he had that occasion where he misrepresented God, and God said to Moses, you don't get to enter into the promised land. You enter into my rest, you will see the promised land, but to enter into it, you no longer can. But Moses is held up, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as a person to emulate, as a person who demonstrated faithfulness, as a person who demonstrated courage as a person whose life was completely changed when he met God face-to-face -face in that burning bush. His life changed. And no one can say after that that he was not a follower of God. Not perfect, but he was forgiven and loved and humble and amazingly convinced that following God was right. Absolutely right. And Moses as God raised him and used him, was brought up as an example to the Jews, to Israel, and to us of what Christ would do. That he would be a prophet. That he would be a leader. That he would bring his people from captivity to the promised land. Exactly what Jesus does. He was an archetype. He was an example to the people of what Jesus would be in fullness. Wasn't perfect, but he served God with zeal and passion and love and devotion and absolute conviction. His heart was broken every time Israel sinned, every time Israel doubted. Moses was there to say, he led you out of Egypt. He provided for you in the wilderness. He's given us promise Follow him. He was in a great example to us even today. And there's no surprise that in the book of Hebrews, especially in this chapter, the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, Moses is pinpointed as a hero.
Now, we've already seen verse 1. Verse 1 is reinforcing the idea that we need to consider, that we need to be fixated on Jesus Christ. For in him, we share a heavenly calling, and in him, we have the one who was sent forth from God, the apostle, the Messiah, the promised one, and he's the high priest, meaning that he has satisfied all the sacrifices demands for perfection through his own giving of his life on the cross. You see, in the Old Testament, and we're going to see this quite a bit in the book of Hebrews as we move forward, the Old Testament sacrificial system was as many bells and whistles and candles and smells as there were, it wasn't enough to save us from their sins. It just wasn't enough. The sacrifices didn't have the same value as humans. It was a goat, a bull, rice and corn offerings and wheat offerings, and it just wasn't enough to make up for the debt of our sin. It needed to be a human, and God did not accept human sacrifices, unlike Baal and Magog and other false gods in the Old Testament. You couldn't have a human sacrifice because you needed a perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect sacrifice would come from God's own providing, that is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Only he had the same value that we have. And he served not only as the sacrifice, but the one who brought the sacrifice. He was the complete package, Jesus Christ. And that's why the author says, you need to think about him. You need to consider him. You need to be fixated on him. You need to always keep your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who you share this common body of believers with, he as the head and us as the members. Consider Jesus. In verse 2, we're told something about his faithfulness and Moses's faithfulness. You see, I think the author is absolutely spot on and right when he brings in other illustrations and other characters from Scripture because we're able to relate to that a little bit more. Sometimes it's very hard to relate to Jesus even though he is completely relatable because we're not perfect. We're not God. But we're a lot like Moses. We can have a really disturbed past. We can have a lot of sin in our lives. But at the same time, God can completely cleanse us and make us completely right and ready to serve like he did with Moses. So Moses is a great example of what it's like as a human. Not divine, but human. How do I interact with God? How do I live a life that's pleasing to God I can see that in Moses. And so in verse 2 we read, uh, let me just read verse 1 because it's actually just one sentence, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So we're to consider Jesus, we're to fix our eyes on him, he's to be all-consuming in our mind and in our presence and in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our daily life, because he was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful, God was faithful, the Trinity was faithful in this relationship 
that Jesus entered into willingly and freely about being born as a babe, living under the law, suffering the punishments of our sin, and being resurrected on the third day in triumph. He was faithful in all of that. Imagine a day in which you were faithful in everything you thought towards God. Faithful. Faithful. Not wavering, not questioning, not doubting, not being uncertain, not having eyes that look to something else for pleasure, but only to him. Jesus lived like that. The Father lived like that to him, and the Father lives like that to us. He is always faithful to us. Never wavers, never has his attention divided. It's on us. And you say, well, how can it be on us and me at the same time and everyone at the same time? He's God. He can do it. His attention is not divided. His full and absolute attention is on you at every moment. And I know that that is mind-boggling and it may seem like it's illogical and it doesn't match, but that's what he says. To the point that not one hair of our head, not one hair from our head, can fall out of its place without God knowing that it's taking place. That is an amazing amount of detail and faithfulness that God has towards us. And Jesus the same way. And we're given that example that, hey, that might be hard to understand, but faithfulness is good not only when we see it in Jesus, but when we see it in Moses who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. That phrase in verse 2 is incredibly specific. There's only one other time in all of Scripture that that phrase takes place. I don't expect you to know that. But it's in Numbers chapter 12. Wow. That's not one of those books you put on your reading list, is it? The book of Numbers. Lots of what can seem like very uninteresting events and numbering of people take place in the book of Numbers. But it is a history of what is taking place from the time that Israel got out of Egypt before they got into the promised land. So that time of the 40 years of wandering. And lots of things are happening there. But in chapter 12 of Numbers, where this exact phrase comes from, is... Hmm. Well, you know what? Let's just go there. might be easier just simply to read it than try to summarize everything that's happening here. Okay, so... To set the stage, Israel is out of Egypt, and they're kind of figuring out how to get to the promised land, and they're having troubles and trials in doing that. And in the process, Moses, who is at this point more than 80 years old, maybe 85, maybe close to 90 at this time, decides it's time to get married. He waited waited a long time, so he gets married, and His brother and his sister are irate. They are really upset. 
Aaron and Miriam, who are godly people in and of their own right, but they took issue with Moses. Moses married a Kishite woman, and um, let me just start it up in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Numbers. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he married, for he married a Cushite woman. Just to make sure you understand, he married a Cushite woman. And they said, Oh, I cannot imagine uttering these words. Has Jehovah indeed spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? You know, that might not at face value be like a slam, like an insult, like, okay, we got Moses. But what it was saying in essence was, obviously Moses is not doing right. And even though in the past God has spoken through Moses, he uses us too. So what's the big deal about Moses is basically what they're saying. He married a Cushite woman. Up until this point, that was not a sin. Doesn't say she was an unbeliever, just of a different ethnic group. Uh, But they took issue with it. They did not like that, and so they started complaining about it. And I imagine they said a lot more than just, oh, God has spoken through Moses, but hasn't he spoken through us as well? This sense of pride, the opposite of humility. They're taking offense at this, and they're becoming prideful, like, hey, God speaks through us too. Well, what they didn't realize in that verse 2, at the end of that verse it says, and Jehovah heard it. There's a whole sermon just in the fact that God hears everything you say and everything you think. It's not lost on him. He's attentive to our words and our thoughts. But that's not the point of this. It goes on in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. He was a humble man. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, chilling words, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. That reminds me of the days the principal would say over the microphone in school, Mr. Meisler, please come to the office. Every time I thought, okay, I won an award. I won something. Maybe I won something this time. Oh, maybe I'm student of the year. Maybe I... It never was. It was always a moment of trouble, tribulation, and embarrassment and taking a piece of paper home for my mom to sign. Actually, that's the sad thing, is my mom didn't have to take the paper. I didn't have to take the paper home for my mom to sign because my mom was his secretary. There was no way of telling my mom, oh yeah, today was great at school, because she was the one who had to make the announcement for me to go to the office. Oh, thank you, God. You would think that that would have controlled me a little bit. No, not at all. So, God speaks out to Abraham, I mean to Moses, to Miriam and Aaron. I want everybody to show up at my office, which was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place that God had established in the wilderness for worship. So you go right into God's office. And the following happens. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, 
Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Same exact phrase we have in verse 2 of chapter 3 of Hebrews. Faithful in all my house. That's why this story is remarkably important. Same phrase. What's happening in here? Verse 8. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. See, God reminded Aaron and Miriam, and he reminds us in this story, that Moses had a special relationship with God. God spoke directly to him, not in visions and riddles and trying to figure it out like he did with Daniel, for example. But Moses saw him almost face to face as God hid him in the cleft of a rock, and God's glory passed him by. Moses had a unique, special relationship with him. And he was considered faithful in all his house. And God took issue with his brother and sister for speaking out against him. Basically saying, do you not understand how uniquely different Moses is? Not, he's not holier than you, but I am using him in a very special way. How dare you speak out against him. And just to get his point, I'll let you read the rest of the chapter, but poor old Miriam gets struck with leprosy because of this sin. So with that story in mind from Numbers chapter 12, let's read verse 2 again of chapter 3 of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Okay, now I kind of get that connection. Moses and Jesus had this amazing relationship to God based on faithfulness. And we can have that too. Moses is not a super saint or a super Christian or a super person. God did use him in a really miraculous way, but he uses us in miraculous ways as well. The sharing of the gospel to someone who is lost and in need of peace and comfort. We're able to give them the words of life. Not that our words are special, we're using his words. But he uses us, just like he uses Moses. Just like he uses all the great saints, the men and women of Scripture, the men and women of history, maybe your own mother, to show you the character of Christ on display when it's hard. He continues to build upon this idea of the house in verse 3 and 4. So just as Jesus was faithful and Moses is faithful in all of God's house, verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Okay, in verse 2, it almost seemed like they were kind of 
on the same playing field, you might say. You know, they're both faithful. But Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus is superior to Moses. He's fully God and fully man. Just like he's superior to the angels we saw in chapter 1 and 2. He is far superior in what he does. His faithfulness is far better. It is perfect. Where we can read of Moses and his failings. Yet still Moses has an influence on us as an example. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I think it moves from an argument of the greater to the lesser. Even though having a house is nice and comfortable, and it provides lots of benefits and blessings and food and shelter, and I mean, it's, a house is a good thing. Yet the person who's living in it is far more important than the house itself, right? You know, uh, recently, I think it was just Thursday, uh, there was a house that burnt down close to 50 and um, Pueblo Boulevard. And I thought, what? first of all, it's a terrible time any time of the year to have your house burned down, let alone right before the holidays. But everyone in those kind of situations, I think, has the same response. Things can be replaced, Right? Now, you may not be able to replace that exact picture with another picture just like it, but, but stuff can be replaced. The fire may take stuff, but if we make it out of the fire, oh, it, there's a sigh of relief. Why? Because people, you, are more valuable than the house that burnt down, than the stuff that was lost. You are safe. Same thing happens in a car accident. You hear someone get in a car accident, your first response, I think, as a parent, it definitely would be, are you okay? We've got insurance for the car. That's, that's one thing. We can take care of that. We can replace that. But how are you? Are you okay? It's because we know there's so much more value in a human soul and person than there is in a car. Now, the world, <laughs> the world has no problem messing that up. The world will tell you, oh, but that's a rare car. That was a fabulous house with hundreds of hours of workmanship that went into it. And it was pristine, and it was beautiful to, gate, to look at, and it was, it was the star of the neighborhood, and now it's a pile of ashes, and the car is just now rust. But you know, right, that you are more of a workpiece, a precious piece of handmade pottery of far greater value to God than every possession of this earth. And you may not always feel it. God's not asking you to feel it. God's asking you to accept the fact that you are more valuable than anything created. He has invested 
his son's life to make you right with him. He didn't do that for the animals, provide a sacrifice for them. He didn't provide a sacrifice for the moon and the stars and the galaxies or the plants and the flowers. He didn't provide any sacrifice for that. He provided it for you. And he would have gone through with it even if you were the only one saved. Now here's a good point, good time to remember that we're all supposed to be humble. Okay, That doesn't mean we're somehow super uniquely special and that we're worthy of being honored above all other people because Jesus died for us. No, that should be very humbling. Humbling that you need a Savior. You can't save yourself. You can't do it on your own. You never will. You never have. You never can. No one can. You can't do it. So that's the beautiful edge to that humility side of you are unique and special and fearfully and wonderfully made, as David says in Psalms. But when it comes to glory and greatness, Jesus takes the cake. He is top. There is no one that comes close to his faithfulness, to his glory, to his uniqueness, to his work. No one, not even a great saint like Moses. The one who built and resides in the house is far greater of value than the one who lives there, or, or the house itself. He goes on in verse 5 and 6 uh, to say, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken of later. But Jesus, but Christ, is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. So not only does, Moses, does God say this relationship between the house and the people in the house, okay, there's a difference, but also the people who reside in the house, who is of greater value or glory or worthy of glory and honor, the servant or the son? Well, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to be able to answer that question. It's the son. It's the one who inherits it. It's the one who owns it is definitely far greater than the person who serves in it. Now Moses, as the verses say, was faithful in doing that. He was good as a servant. He was good in doing that. He was good at speaking forth what God gave him. And what God gave him was a message of incredible promise, that there would be one who'd come one day through all of these circumstances in order to save his people from their sins, and he would be the sacrifice, much like when Abraham went to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, God gave a substitute. So God will bring his own substitute to this whole mess of bloody sacrifices upon an altar and burnt altars that God would provide his own. And Moses was very faithful time and time again of bringing that message to bear to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. Moses lived a life demonstrating that only God can save. Every miracle that Moses performed was God's miracle. The time that he brought them through the Red Sea on dry land, it was God who did that. 
Every step of the way, God provided the quail and the manna for them to eat when they were fussy. God provided the fact that their shoes never wore out for 40 years of wandering and walking. God took care of them. And ultimately, God fulfilled his promise by bringing his people into the promised land. And Moses testified about all those things. And even so, as great of a job he did, Jesus is far greater. Far greater. That was a challenge for the Israelites when Jesus came. When Jesus came and he pronounced, I and the Father am one. You worship him, you worship me. I'm the promised one. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I'm the sacrifice. They took offense at that, almost like Miriam and Aaron, and said, not better than Abraham, not better than Moses and the prophets. Who do you think you are? He's the son He's come back and said, I'm now taking charge of this mess that sin has made. I'm the one who's going to fix it. Abraham only talked about it. Moses only talked about it. All the prophets talked about it. I'm here to do it. And as the son, the father looks upon him and says, well done. Awesome. You did exactly what we wanted to accomplish. He's never told us that. You've accomplished salvation. You've won. You've you've died the right death. You sacrificed the right way. No. That's for Christ to do. And for us to come alongside and accept as a servant in his house. Now in 1 Corinthians, actually, I'm going to jump to a different verse that I didn't... um, didn't read this morning, but has great application. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, kind of as our take-home verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And uh, yeah, just 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll give you a second to turn there. I think this is a very incredibly encouraging and applicable verse for what we're facing at the end of chapter, verse 6 in Hebrews chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And just to give you a heads up, Peter is talking about you in this verse. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those two verses are a beautiful summary and capstone to what it means of being a servant in God's house. What happens to us? We're made into something incredibly precious in God's eyes for one purpose. Did you catch the purpose that we have, what we're supposed to do, being that we are now part of this family He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Your goal, your purpose, if you ever ask me, Tim, what am I supposed to do with my life? Go to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and you see exactly right there and then you are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who's delivered you out of darkness. That is your purpose in life, ultimately. 
That is your goal. That is the number one thing you need to put on your, what should I accomplish this year with the New Year's resolution? That is it. How am I going to proclaim the excellencies of God to the people around me? How am I going to show his mercy, his tenderness, his greatness, the fact that he changed my entire life? And he's moved me from being a servant into a son and daughter in his house. That's amazing. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for just your tremendous blessings of mercy. Father, I hope that we experience your mercies new every morning, that we appreciate them, that we celebrate them, and that we proclaim it to the world around us. Help our fears and anxieties and uncertainties and give us the strength and courage to proclaim, as Moses did, as Abraham, as all the prophets and the disciples did. Help us proclaim your excellencies. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.
Amen. Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here next Sunday. God bless.